0: Hey everyone, this is Forrest. Before we get started with today's episode, which is a great conversation between Rick and Dr. Shauna Shapiro, who is an internationally recognized expert in mindfulness, I wanted to give you a quick update on the future of the podcast. The short version is that we've done a lot of thinking about how to pay for the production costs of the podcast, and we're going to try out a crowdfunding model. We've joined just about every other independent creator out there and started a Patreon. And if you'd like to support us there for about the cost of a cup of coffee or so a month, you can go to patreon.com backslash being well podcast. I've also included a link to it in the description of today's episode. And if that's all you'd like to hear about that, I really can't blame you. And you're welcome to skip forward a couple of minutes to hear Rick's conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. But I wanted to take a moment here to be really transparent with you and explain why we're going to start crowdfunding. I've loved creating the podcast. Uh, Working on it has been a real joy for me, and it's been incredibly fulfilling for Rick as well. I'm being honest when I say that one of the greatest pleasures in my life these days is receiving some of the incredible feedback that we've gotten about the podcast. And it's been just truly incredible to reach as many people as we have. It really does feel like we're helping people, and that's just an amazing feeling. Doing this podcast has opened doors for me that I never even knew were there, and I'm grateful to everyone who's taken the time to listen. At the same time, it does take a lot of effort to run the podcast. I put a lot of time into preparing for our conversations, reaching out to new guests, editing the audio, and generally just kind of keeping the trains running on time so we can get at least one new episode a week out to all of you. And that's setting aside business costs like for hosting, if we have to rent a studio, or something else like that. And that's without considering all the time Rick puts into the podcast as well. I'm truly a believer that high-quality mental health resources should be freely available to absolutely everyone. One of the things I love about the podcast is just that. It's free, and that's never going to change. That said, there are basically three ways that people monetize podcasts. Advertising, affiliate sales for sponsored programs, and crowdfunding. So far, we've mostly gotten by by going with affiliate sales, and have included pitches for programs that Rick sells in our episodes. That's worked for him, and it's made it possible for him to continue to donate his time to the podcast. But although Rick gives away an enormous amount of content for free, and he's also given thousands of scholarships out to his various products and programs, he also runs a business, and he employs a lot of people. Some of those programs are several hundred dollars, and even with a scholarship, that's a big ask for many people. Then there's advertising. There's a good chance that we'll add advertisers in the future, and we're currently exploring it. But personally, I'm incredibly leery of advertising. I kind of hate it, and I would really only want to work with companies I can authentically endorse. Any advertising we do add will be kept very light and will be for products that I already use and value. As you might imagine, this kind of limits our opportunities in that space a bit. That leaves crowdfunding. And I love the idea of having as direct a relationship as possible with you, our listeners. We've received just wonderful and frankly touching emails from people asking how they can support the podcast. And now we have an easy and relatively inexpensive way to do just that, that hopefully gets you some good value in return. So now for about the cost of a cup of coffee a month, or you know maybe two, you can now support my work with the Being Well podcast on patreon.com backslash podcast. By becoming a patron, you'll allow us to continue to offer this podcast freely to anyone who wants to listen and you'll receive some benefits along the way. And that's, of course, above and beyond my truly heartfelt thanks for supporting my work. Some of the things you'll be able to receive include expanded show notes, where I'll go into greater detail about some of the research behind what our guests are talking about in a given episode, and provide some more background reading. You'll also have access to a private feed on Patreon, where we'll be sharing additional content before anyone else gets it, and access to new Just One Thing episodes. We'll also be sharing special Q&A podcasts on a regular basis, where we'll answer patrons' questions. And if we move towards advertising, you'll have access to a private, advertising-free feed. That's really important to me in particular. Again, that's patreon.com backslash Podcast, and I'll include a link to it in the description of today's show as well. I truly appreciate your support of my work, whether it's by telling other people about the show, becoming a patron, or just listening to it. It's truly been a pleasure to do this, and I'm looking forward to continuing to grow the podcast and to bringing you great, high-quality, clear, concise information in the field of mental health in the year to come. So now, all that said, it's time for Rick's conversation with Dr. Shauna Shapiro.
1: Hi, I'm Rick Hansen, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. Forest is off today, so I'm flying solo, and I'm especially happy to be joined by my friend, Dr. Shauna Shapiro, a world-class expert on mindfulness, self-compassion, and author of the wonderful new book, Good Morning, I Love You. Shauna has a bio in two parts, which really speaks to who you are. The official story is that you're a clinical psychologist, author, and internationally recognized, truly expert in mindfulness and self-compassion. She's a professor at Santa Clara University and has published over 150 papers and three critically acclaimed books translated into 16 languages. Shauna has presented her research to the King of Thailand, the Danish government, Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Summit, and the World Council for Psychotherapy, as well as to Fortune 100 companies, including Google, Cisco Systems, and LinkedIn. I'll just say as well, Shauna, that to me, one of the hallmarks of your work is its breadth. I mean, you're moving back and forth between lifelong practitioners and monastics in Bhutan to the stage with a TED Talk that's, I think, been viewed over a million times to Fortune 500 companies, to major media. Your work's been featured in The Wall Street Journal, Mashable Wired, USA Today, Dr. Oz, The Huffington Post, and The American Psychologist. Now, also on your website, there's the whole story, which we'll get into in a moment anyway, but I want to also certainly acknowledge that there is tremendous soul and a background with a fair amount of suffering in your story. And I think that's also really useful for people to appreciate. You present yourself very well, you're very polished, you're extremely accomplished, and it might be easy to miss if people didn't know it so much that, in the background, is a real journey through tremendous difficulty and adversity and pain. So I hope we'll have a chance to talk a bit about that, as well as lots of practical tips for people about bringing more mindfulness, compassion, and self-compassion into everyday life. So there we go. Welcome, Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Again, I'm really glad that you're here.
2: Wow. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate that and looking forward to this. Well, let's jump
1: in. So how do you get to where you are, you know, the five-ish minute version? What got you interested in psychology, mindfulness? Uh, you've also, as part of your story, you've grown up with and been friends with the leading luminaries in the broad domain, let's say, of humanistic psychology, clinical psychology, and transpersonal psychology. So what's your story? How'd you get here?
2: So it's, as you mentioned, it's a long story. It's a, it's a long journey. And it began when I was a teenager. I had spinal fusion surgery. So I had been a very healthy, active teenager. I was a volleyball player. And my senior year, I found out that I had severe scoliosis. And the orthopedic surgeon said it was so bad, it was going to puncture my lungs. But we had to operate immediately. And so I went from this healthy, active teenager to lying in a hospital bed, unable to walk. During that time of rehabilitation, it was a really challenging time. I was in a lot of physical pain, but worse, I was in a lot of kind of mental turmoil. I felt like my entire life had been taken away, you know, my strength, my health, my volleyball, my body. And it was during that time that my father introduced me to mindfulness and... It really was one of those moments in your life where everything kind of makes sense. It's not that transformation happened overnight, but the clarity that this was the path that I was supposed to follow was there.
1: What struck you about mindfulness? What called you or what was so Valuable about it at that turning point for you. A lot of people are introduced to mindfulness one way or another, and that's nice. They shrug and they keep on going. <laughs> but something really compelled you. What was
2: it? Yeah, that's such a great question. You know, what happened was my dad gave me John Kabat-Zinn's book, Wherever You Go, There You Are. And I can vividly remember the opening paragraph. I'm lying in my hospital bed, and it says, No matter what's happened to you, it's already happened. The real question is, Where do you go from here? and as i continued to read i realized that that i had choice that i didn't have to wallow in this self pity and in my anxiety and in my fear that i had choice and that this possibility that i could be happy again and that things could change kind of it had eluded me all those months that i was lying in this hospital bed and all of a sudden there was hope and that i actually could be part of that hope that i could practice these exercises these techniques these meditations and start to transform my mind and my heart and my body it was a real significant shift in my entire orientation toward life and when i was about 20 i decided to go to thailand to study in a monastery and i did my first silent meditation retreat it was about 2 weeks long and that's when i discovered that i really didn't understand what mindfulness was <laughs> It's one thing to read about it. And I, you know, I had read everything. That's one of my passions is reading. But to understand it intellectually and cognitively, I kind of miss a lot of the essential features. And in fact, one of the funny experiences I, I had that I that I told in my TED talk was while I was at the monastery, I was trying to focus my mind and to pay attention because that's what I thought mindfulness was, that it was just about being present, paying attention. And you know, it's kind of hard to do. As you start to pay attention, your mind wanders off, you think about other things. And so I started getting really frustrated and I started judging myself. And it was one of those like so impatient, so frustrated, I was judging myself. I was judging everyone around me, even the monks. And luckily this monk from England arrived. And when I asked to have an interview and I explained to him how I was practicing with all this judgment and frustration, he looked at me and he said, you're not practicing mindfulness. You're practicing judgment, frustration, impatience. And then he said these five words that I've never forgotten. He said, what you practice grows stronger. And we know this now with neuroplasticity, right? Our repeated experiences, our repeated thoughts, patterns, create our neural structures. And so what he explained to me is that mindfulness isn't just about attention. It's about how you pay attention. That it's about paying attention with kindness, with curiosity, with compassion, so that we welcome our experience instead of trying to force our experience to be a certain way. And that changed everything for me.
1: That's really very, very profound. So what do people draw upon? What do you draw upon to sustain mindfulness, to sustain attention to what is painful, upsetting, Seemingly intractable, even. In other words, what cofactors or what allies, uh, friends, what friends are alongside mindfulness right. to help mindfulness keep on going?
2: So, there's a couple of things. When I came back from Thailand and I started my PhD program, what I really tried to do was understand what is the essence of mindfulness. And I like how you said, what are the, the friends of mindfulness? And what I discovered is that there's really these three core elements of intention, attention, and attitude. What I find is, of course, attention is important. I mean, people say that time is our most important resource. They're wrong. Where we put our attention is our life. So that's foundational mindfulness. But why you're paying attention, your intention, what you care about, and how you pay attention, your attitude, right, paying attention with kindness, are also important there's these three elements and I believe they all work together. And when all three are present, that's that state of mindfulness and we can practice it.
1: So in terms of attitude, that's probably where most of friends of of mindfulness live, although intention and attention are friends of mindfulness too. And I'm thinking about a comment that Forrest made a number of years ago in which he said that he thought that attention was the real currency globally in the 21st century, because especially as people live in increasingly developed countries and minimal survival, at least for many, is, is relatively handled, then increasingly attention becomes the currency of everyday life, oh, which really supports your point. So what are some of the friends of mindfulness in terms of attitude that, like I said, help people bear what they are opening to through mindfulness?
2: The reason I got so interested in attitude was as a clinical psychologist as i began teaching and practicing mindfulness and hearing people's stories what i was most struck by is the incredible amount of self-judgment we all have this tremendous amount of shame this sense of i'm not good enough i'm not doing it right whatever it is and what i realized is when we're paying attention we're often do, we're doing it with a lot of judgment and That paying attention with kindness, with openness and curiosity, that's what allows us to truly see clearly. That's what allows us to be with our pain, to bear our suffering. When we meet suffering with judgment, it compounds the situation. And in fact, when we meet kind of our mistakes or areas of growth and places that we think we need to change with shame, it actually shuts down the learning centers of the brain and it robs us of the resources we need to change. So this attitude of kindness and curiosity, I think is fundamental to mindfulness. In fact, it's not mindfulness if there's not kindness.
1: The reason I pause slightly there is I just think about the ways in which people define mindfulness differently and just kind of want to acknowledge that because sometimes people might listen who are used to a definition of mindfulness that's relatively narrow and restricted is essentially sustained present moment awareness alongside which other friends or enemies you know can can be operating and the definition that you're giving particularly as you include attitude as an essential defining attribute of mindfulness is a Nice, broad definition. So I'm not disagreeing. I'm just acknowledging that as we go forward here.
2: My perspective is definitely more of an umbrella term, as John Kabat-Zinn has talked about as well, which is really how how do we bring the word mindfulness into the West in a non-spiritual, non-Buddhist, but still retaining its essence and still retaining its transformational power and including these three core elements of intention, In what direction do I want to set the compass of my heart? What do I care about? What do I value? And then attention in the present moment. And then our attitude, which is paying attention with kindness.
1: Yeah, that's great. It's interesting. Uh, I think one of the friends uh, is the body and the body tells us things. And I know that you're extremely tuned into your body as well as as an athlete, yoga teacher, dancer, and other things. And for myself right here, as you were speaking, suddenly I had a lot of sensation in the area of my heart. And my body was telling me about the centrality of heart in mindfulness, both the physical heart, but especially the emotional heart, the sense of bringing heart to it. One of the classic uh, descriptions of a sincere practitioner in the Buddhist uh, canon, uh, early teachings of the Buddha, is that a sincere practitioner is ardent, ardent heartfelt, enthusiastic, committed, passionate, as well as diligent, resolute, and mindful. And they all kind of come together here. Diligent and resolute would include the intention aspects, I think, of what you're talking about.
2: I think it's really interesting that, you know, even the word mindfulness, that in Asian languages, heart and mind are interchangeable. So mindfulness could have been translated as heartfulness, just as accurately. And so for me, there really is that sense of, of warmth and care that when we're attending, when we're paying attention, we're tending to ourselves. Yeah. How I might tend to my son.
1: Oh, that's very lovely.
2: From very early on, I learned about this kindness part of mindfulness, the attitude of mindfulness. This is what the monk explained to me when I was 20 years old. He said... If you're not practicing with kindness, you're not practicing mindfulness. And even though I knew that, somehow it didn't stick. And so I found myself a decade in practicing in a very harsh, judgmental way. You know, every time my mind would wander off, I would kind of spank myself and get back on task. And when I would make mistakes in my life, there was a lot of judgment as well. And it really kind of hit home when. After I had been married and had my son, my husband and I were going through a very difficult time, and actually, eventually, divorced. And this kind of enormous sense of shame and, and fear and anxiety, but so much self-judgment, just just crippled me at that time. And I remember my one of my meditation teachers saying to me, "You know, you're practicing a lot of shame. <laughs> it's growing stronger. Whatever you practice, grows stronger." And she said. Maybe you should practice some self-kindness, some self-compassion. She said, why don't you say, I love you, Shauna, every day? And I was like, no way. (laughs) It sounded so inauthentic and so contrived. And so she suggested that I say, good morning, Shauna, every morning, just as a way to greet myself with kindness. And she said, try putting your hand on your heart when you say it. It releases oxytocin. It's good for you. (laughs) She knew the science would win me over. So... I began practicing, just waking up, putting my hand on my heart, and just saying, good morning, Shauna. And it was kind of nice, right? Instead of this avalanche of self-judgment and shame, I would wake up and I'd have a moment of kindness and presence. I continued to practice and I started noticing subtle shifts, a little bit more kindness, a little less harshness. And then a few months later, it was my birthday. And it was the first birthday I'd ever been alone without my son or my husband. And I remember waking up and this image of my grandmother came to me Mm -hmm. and my Nana was, she was my person in this world. And I had such unconditional love from her and for her. And so this image of my Nana comes to me and I have my hand on my heart and I'm saying good morning. And all of a sudden I kind of blurt out good morning. I love you, Shauna. And it is as if the dam around my heart burst. You know, I could feel it. I could feel all this compassion for the tender parts of me, for the parts that were afraid, for the young parts of me, and so much self-love. And, you know, I wish I could tell everyone that every day since then has been this bubble of (laughs) self-love and I've never felt judgment again. And that's not true. But what is true is this pathway of of kindness towards myself has been established and it continues to grow every day. I practice every single day. Good morning, I love you.
1: That's such a profound and sweet statement. And I know you also express that to other people too, sometimes, <laughs> including me. And I'm wondering first what you feel yourself when you say, Good morning, I love you to another person, including even in an email, including even if the email is sent in the afternoon. So what you feel yourself and also what you imagine the other person might be feeling too, or what your intention is or attitude is when you make that offering to another person.
2: Oh, beautiful. I love that you call it an offering because that's really how I feel it. Because after I had that experience and I continued to practice, like you said, it began expanding out. So I would say, good morning, I love you, Shauna. Shauna. And then I would think of my son, good morning, I love you, Jackson. And often when he was at his dad's house and I'd be missing him terribly, it was this beautiful way to feel connected to him. And I just began expanding out to my friends and my family. I remember one morning the garbage truck went by and I was like, good morning, I love you. you know? And eventually, like you said, I began sending it to my colleagues, my dear friends. I eventually shared it in the TED Talk You know, to over a million and a half people now have learned this practice. And I think for me, what I feel is it's a reminder. So sometimes I'll say it in the afternoon to someone. It's just my way of greeting people, of this reminder to treat myself and the other person with care, mm. be present, to be kind. And so it's one of those practices that it, it sounds so trite and it sounds so simple. And you know, my first reaction to it was like, oh, no way. But there's something so beautiful in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. It's greeting yourself. It's being present with yourself or another person with kindness. And I think that's really the definition of mindfulness.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter. And it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com beingwell Being Well today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Being Well. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary os one peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy The Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on our website. I'm
1: going to depart from the usual practice in this podcast, and uh, so this is a warning to listeners, and uh, give you a chance, Shauna, in a moment to guide us through a practice, something experiential for two, three minutes. And I'm thinking that it would be useful for you to offer something that's sort of foundational, a foundational practice of you know, heartfelt mindfulness, uh, mindful heartfulness. <laughs> and that'll then be foundational as well as a teaching to people about what can really shift in just a few minutes. And then on that foundation, maybe we'll start exploring your book more, including some of the applications for dealing with particular issues. So you want to take us through something and I'll do it with you.
2: So I want to invite all of us to just take a moment and If you're in a place where you can close your eyes, that can be helpful. But if not, it's perfectly fine. You can continue to listen and practice. And begin by just feeling your body. So it's so helpful, as Rick said earlier, this sense of embodiment, that this isn't just a mental practice, but we're actually feeling our body. So bring your awareness to your feet and just wiggle your toes. Maybe soften your jaw and your face and your eyes. Relax your shoulders. And just get a sense of your whole body resting. Notice that you're breathing. And we'll use the body to focus our attention in the present moment. So right now we're just gathering our attention back into ourselves. And then see if you can add kindness, curiosity, this attitude of mindfulness that involves welcoming whatever's here. So if you notice you're a little tired, you just welcome that. If you notice interest, openness, welcome those. If you're feeling anxious or sad, you welcome that. And what I mean by welcome is it doesn't mean that you want it to be there. It means it's already here. So can we treat it with kindness? Can we say, oh, sweetheart, you're a little sad right now. Or you're hopeful right now. Noticing whatever's here. Softening the body 5% more. It's not about being perfect. We're just practicing. And then as you're ready, listening for your intention. In what direction do you want to set the compass of your heart? In what direction do you want to head? Maybe more clarity, more ease, more joy. Finding a word or phrase. Taking another breath in and out. And as you're ready, if your eyes are closed, you can open them. I like to just stretch my arms above my head and move the body in any way that feels good. And what I want you to notice is that even as the meditation ends, the mindfulness can continue. It can still be present. We can still be kind. We can still be intentional. Good. So what did you notice, Rick?
1: Well, I noticed that I was getting calmer. My mind is still, you know, moving a little bit about talk, you know, planning how we're going to talk and so forth, keeping it real. And underneath it all, there, it's like the pond, you know, the mind is like a pond with ruffled waters often. Uh, There were still little breezes going over the surface of my pond of consciousness as little thoughts would pass about what we could talk about next and so forth, while the pond itself was clearly settling down beautiful on that foundation which teaches us really the essence of heartfelt mindfulness let's say and also teaches us that we can do a lot in a brief amount of practice i mean once one knows how to do it then one doesn't need the external verbal instructions which are necessary but initially might be a little distracting But if you were, for example, as a listener to listen to Shauna's instructions there a few times and then internalize them for yourself, you could also do this really, really on your own. So on that foundation, I wonder if we could talk about your book and some of the great material in it about kind of like what gets in the way. And then also we can talk about how to apply these, these tools and insights and ways of being to particular kinds of issues. So in terms of getting in the way, first thing I want to talk about is your old friend, self-criticism, the gremlins, as it were, in the mind who you chatter away. So let's say you're, you know that good to not be so self-critical. And let's say that you're not allying with those inner critics and feeding them and fueling them, identifying them. Okay, you got that going. That's good. But still, the darn things keep yapping away. In everyday life as well as when you sit down to do any kind of simple formal practice like we just did a few minutes ago so what what's your advice or what's your own practice with dealing with that inner critic
2: So I think you need a couple of tools to deal with them because they are they're stubborn and they they're there and I think the first thing for me was learning the science about it that, you know, I think there was a fear that if I wasn't critical of myself, if I wasn't judgmental, then I wouldn't be motivated to change, that I wouldn't be motivated to continue learning and growing. And so some of the science of self compassion really compelled me. Kristen Neff, who's a dear friend and colleague, did tremendous research showing that people who are self compassionate actually are more effective at. Losing weight, or exercising more, or taking care of themselves, going to doctor's appointments. So it was kind of just the opposite of what I had thought. I had thought that if you were self-compassionate, you would be kind of like a lazy couch potato. But, but what she showed is that when you're kind to yourself, you take care of yourself. And so that was really compelling for me. And it's what I often share with my students and my clients is that self-compassion is actually quite powerful, and that these. Critical shaming thoughts, they paralyze us. They prevent us from growing and learning. They don't help. So the first thing was just the science. The second thing is I reflect often on where are these voices coming from. Often we've internalized them, but why are they doing this? You know, what's their point? And what I've come to realize for myself and for the people I've worked with is often they're just trying to take care of you. And they're going about it in the wrong way. And so it's out of their fear or they're trying to control and be safe or their mistaken belief that this is going to help you change. And so if you can just kind of bow to the voice and say, thank you for your opinion, I get you're trying to take care of me instead of fighting against it or believing it, it frees up a lot of energy.
1: You're talking about, in a way, the power of bringing good morning, I love you inner critic.
2: Absolutely. Good morning, I love you, inner critic. It it, it all comes back to what that monk told me, which is he said, welcome with loving arms, whatever arises, even if it's the inner critic, even if it's these shaming thoughts, you say, oh, sweetheart, ouch, that hurts. And you are part of my experience.
1: Mm. And then alongside all that as well, using the power of positive neuroplasticity, which you write about, in your book, and as people may know, is a particular interest of my own. Using that power of positive neuroplasticity, what you practice grows stronger, as you put it, you're also growing alongside the inner critic powerful forces inside you of self-compassion of encouragement i refer to them as like the caring committee you know who's on your caring committee and you're growing that as well right by bringing attention to and and cultivating experiences very right? felt experiences of being on your own side wishing yourself well bringing that kindness to yourself right
2: well i think that's what was so brilliant in your coining the term positive neuroplasticity is because neuroplasticity is not necessarily good. <laughs> it, yeah. it means it, you know we can, we can shape in one direction or another. And so what I think is so beautiful about that term is it says you can be intentional and yeah. you can shape your brain in positive ways. You can strengthen, as you called it, the caring committee. Learn how to be kind toward yourself. And this for me is invaluable. And that's really what the Good Morning I Love You practice does. It says you can wake up every single day and greet yourself with kindness, no matter what. And truthfully, some days I wake up and I feel lonely. And and some days I wake up and I feel raw. And some days I wake up and I do the practice and I feel love. And no matter how I feel, I do the practice. Because I believe, as we've said, what you practice grows stronger.
1: So... I actually tried to track down the first usage of the term positive neuroplasticity. I couldn't find it. I think it's been used before I used it. So I'm not going to claim that I've coined it. I'll definitely claim that I've embraced it and uh, tried to make the most of it. So, Shauna, now I wonder if we could really talk about applying this approach of, you know, good morning, I love you, heartfelt mindfulness to, let's say, a particular issue. So let's say, as is really quite common today, that people are really concerned about the state of the world and yet feel helpless to do much about it. I actually think about a term from Masterson, uh, who was James Masterson, was, as you may know, an academic about object relations and clinical psychology. He talked about a way of relating to things in which we feel like we're a witness at the execution, kind of like helpless horror. So A lot of us these days, I think, feel like we're the witness at the execution but that we can't do anything about, whether it's global climate crisis, politics, American issues currently. Without getting into the details of those particular issues, what do you think are some of the things people can do when they are caught up in outrage, despair, numbness, helplessness? What can we do?
2: So I believe the first step is to become aware of how we're feeling. So just name the outrage or name the hopelessness or the despair. It's really interesting. There was a study done at UCLA that showed when you name the emotion, it actually calms down your physiology. That he was affectionately called name it to tame it. And so I think the first step for people is this mindful awareness of I'm in pain right now, really becoming aware of that. The second step is to treat yourself with kindness, to bring compassion, to soothe yourself. Because we never make clear decisions when we're acting out of pain or fear or anxiety. So the first step is mindfulness. The second step is kindness, passion. And the third step is really recognizing our common humanity, recognizing that we're not alone in our suffering. I think we isolate ourselves often in our suffering. That I remember when I was going through my divorce, it felt like I was the only one getting divorced. And that this practice of recognizing common humanity allowed me to open up to all the other people in this world that have suffered heartbreak and that were going through a transition and to be able to send not only myself this compassion, but to send it out to every one of them. And so I think this is kind of the first step is this mindful awareness, this kindness, this common humanity once we've calmed our physiology down and we're able to see clearly, then we can set a clear intention of how to respond, what direction we want to head in. But there's this wonderful quote from Einstein. He says, the consciousness that created the problems is not the consciousness that's going to solve them. And I'm paraphrasing a bit, but what I think these practices do is they help us kind of take a step back. Instead of getting so lost and caught in the despair, we take a step back so that we can see clearly, which is really the definition of mindfulness, means to see clearly. We want to see clearly so we can respond effectively, so we can respond with wisdom, with strength, with clarity.
1: That's great. And I'd also like to get into some little, some sections here, not so little in your book, in which you really get into the applications of all this for particular kinds of things. Uh, So for example, chapter nine says, everyday magic from mindful sex to mindful eating. So I wondered if you could just, uh, in the time we have that remains Talk about some of the applications of these approaches to particular issues, one or two, let's say, that many, many people have in everyday life, probably with sex and eating, as well as uh, staying out of bickering quarrels with other people. That's something a lot of people talk
2: about. Yeah. Well, I think one of the beauties of mindfulness is that it is so translatable into everyday life. The, The key to mindfulness is to integrate it into our moment-to-moment way of being. That mindfulness isn't just a meditation practice. It's this way of living our lives. And so that chapter was really dedicated to how can we integrate mindfulness into our sexuality, into our parenting, into our work life, into how we eat and how we relate to other people. And for me, that's been profound because I think For many years, I spent a lot of time on retreats and in monasteries and in real deep meditation practice, but I wasn't so great at integrating it and bringing it back to my life. And when I realized that it was really important to practice in all these different situations and in every moment, that it wasn't just, I could sit on retreat and be perfectly peaceful for days and days, but then I'd get back into a relationship and it would be, you know, it would blow up and it would be challenging. And I was like, wait a minute. So for me, one of the most powerful ways to practice is in our relationships. It's been incredible for me in terms of my relationship with my son and myself as a mother and and also in um, relationship with my partner. And I truly believe that learning how to care for and be kind to ourselves, learning how to actually love ourselves is what allows us to fully love another person. Mm. And this for me has been the hardest part of mindfulness is this practice of self-compassion, truly, truly welcoming all of myself. And it's a continual practice. It's not an end point, but at this point, I do there's, there's this sense of, of caring for myself that I is so radical, and it overflows into all the other areas of my life.
1: Is there a growing edge in particular for you these days? I mean, from the outside, you look so successful, you are so successful. You've been practicing. Uh, I think there's a certain thing about practicing seriously. I mean, you've been a genuine practitioner since you were 17 years old, clearly. What's the
2: growing edge
1: for someone who's been practicing for well over 20 years?
2: It's interesting. I, What I'm realizing as you ask me that question is that's a question I want to ask myself um, much more often. Mm. Um, and I think... Just what's coming up spontaneously is maybe my growing edge is, is to make sure I keep learning that even these truths, and, and I'm, I'm now I'm hesitating on using that word, but even these things that I hold so dear, and I do hold so dear in my life, they've, they've helped me incredibly to stay curious and stay open because even these will keep evolving. And so to not stay static in the teachings or in the practices, but to let them evolve and to let myself be a continual learner. I think that would be my growing edge.
1: How do you help yourself keep growing and learning every day?
2: Mm, well, one wonderful way is, is community, is people like you and people who I learn from, um, teachers, mentors, friends, students i I feel like I'm continually awed and inspired when I see other people engage in these practices they they remind me of of how I felt in those first moments and it kind of brings it all back and it keeps it so fresh. So I think for anyone beginning a practice, having support, having community, you know, I often recommend that if people buy my book, they also buy one for their friend and that they and that they practice together. It's like having a running buddy. And I find it so incredibly connecting and powerful.
1: That's so true. You, I'm sure, know the famous back and forth between the Buddha and his primary companion and cousin, actually, Ananda. And they were sitting one afternoon amongst the other monks that they practiced with and lived with. And Ananda stretched out and pointed at all the the monks and said, essentially, look, noble sir, to the Buddha, this is half the holy life. In other words, you know, half the holy life is sort of what we do out in the world in our relationships. The other half, by implication, is sort of what we do privately in isolation inside our own mind. And the Buddha exclaimed, not so, Ananda, not so. This is the whole of the holy life. All of this together, one thing, community, inner and outer, the same, woven together, helping each other in an upward spiral.
2: And I think that's what we're finding. I mean, if you look at the science, loneliness and isolation are the number one predictors of death and illness from all causes. That's
1: wild. Yeah.
2: Sense of belonging, of connection, of supporting each other is, is really fundamental to who we are. And... And it it's, it spreads across all things, including our practice.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, as we move toward an end here, I'd like to ask you a question that we routinely ask people. If you could go back in time and communicate with a younger version of yourself at some particular period in your life, what could you say? So the period I'm going to ask you to communicate with, if you knew yourself, if you could go back and talk with yourself at say age 16, before the wheels really started to come off, what could you say to the you then from your heart that you think could have been really helpful for her?
2: I love that question. I think it's incredibly powerful practice and I've done this before in my life. And I would go back and comfort her and let her know that you're never stuck, that it's never too late, that life is always presenting these miracles, and that change and transformation is always possible no matter what. No matter what's happened in your past, no matter what your circumstances, change is always possible for all of us no matter what.
1: Well, wonderful. And what a nice. Place to end this conversation. And I'm looking forward to more with you, Shauna, down the road, of course. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us all today.
2: Thank you, Rick.
0: So today, Rick had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Shauna Shapiro. Dr. Shapiro's new book is called Good Morning, I Love You Mindfulness and Self Compassion Practices to Rewire Your Brain for Calm, Clarity, and Joy. The book comes out on January 28th, and if you're interested in learning more about it, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. I'd also like to remind you about our new Patreon account, which we're just now launching. If you'd like to learn more about it, you can follow the link in the description of today's episode or go to patreon.com backslash beingwellpodcast. As I said at the start of today's episode, truly any contribution you make to the podcast, whether it's by becoming a Patreon, telling a friend about it, or even just being a listener is enormously appreciated. And this whole process has just been absolutely fantastic for me. So if you've been enjoying these episodes, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. So until next time, thanks again for listening.